Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. All right, gang. Um, Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. We're going to continue on in our series here in the book of Acts. Um, Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. Um, We are now kind of finally getting on the back end of this story of the crippled man. Um, So you're kind of probably thinking like literally how long are we going to be on this uh, topic of this crippled man. Um, but this is this is kind of finally after Peter gives the sermon to the crowd that have gathered because of the wonder and the miracle um, that happened to this guy uh, when Peter and John were then arrested. Um, they were arrested and they were taken to a court. Um, before the court, they were basically threatened. This is now them being released. And once they're released, they go back to um, the, their friends that we will see here in a minute. They go back to them. And then this is a prayer that they offer up to God in response to everything that has just happened to them um, and this threats. And so I think it is uh, very timely for us um, as a church. And so I'm not going off script today like I did last week. I'm going to stick to it. Um, but this is very timely for us in several reasons um, that, that I want to lay out for you. Um, and, and I'm going to give you actually all five of them before we read the passage so that you can kind of see them throughout the passage. And then we'll dive into each one of the five um, after we get done reading. And so here's why I think it's relevant for us today. Uh, I think it's relevant because of the answer that came from the prayer. I think it's relevant because of who is praying. I think it's relevant because of the occasion when it was prayed. I think it's relevant because of whom it was prayed to. And I think it's relevant because of what they asked for. Um, So those five things are what we're going to see in this passage um, responding to these threats that were given from the religious leaders to uh, Peter and John and the rest of the apostles. So Acts chapter 4 Uh, Verse 23 is where we're going to pick up, and and then we'll just read through 31. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their heart, or look upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. So the number one, the first one that we talked about is the answer that came. Um, And the answer that came is ultimately verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. You can actually see some parallels here 
at this moment also with paralleling with what happened at Pentecost. Um, here they had just prayed in Pentecost. They, they were praying before Pentecost happens in Acts 1.14. Here it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2.4 it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the exact same verbiage there. Here, God shakes the building to demonstrate His power. There, in Acts 2.2, it says, A sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind. Here, they speak the word of God with boldness. There, in Pentecost, they began to speak in other tongues the great things of God. And so, in other words, Pentecost was the first great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. However, it's not the only great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. I think a lot of times people always look at Pentecost as this one unique moment in which God pours out His Spirit onto the church. And it's not. It is a unique moment. It is an extraordinary moment in which the Holy Spirit's poured out. But it is the beginning of multiple extraordinary moments in which the Holy Spirit is ultimately poured out to the church. Um, Pentecost, the first great outpouring, happened. Here's another one. In both, God gives physical demonstrations of His power. In both, He gives the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In both, He releases open and courageous speaking. Whatever else Pentecost is, it's not unique as an outpouring of the Spirit to ultimately empower the church for the mission and witness that God has given to it. And so the blessing of Pentecost would happen in different ways and different measures literally throughout the book of Acts as well as throughout our entire church history. And so that's why I think it's relevant for us today is because what happened in Pentecost and what happened to them is something that we can be praying for for ourselves as the district church, as multiple churches here in Indianapolis, those that, that we are partnered with as well, other churches that we're not partnered with that are like-minded here in the city as well. Like we want to see the Spirit of God poured out on the people of God here in the city ultimately so that we can see the same thing happen. The answer that came was that there was power given to them in order for them to continue on in the mission. And so I think that's relevant for us today because this outpouring of the Spirit is exactly what is desperately needed in the church in America. Um, I, I think way too many times we, we tend to kind of rest in our own prerogatives or our own um, skills, our own abilities, our own plans and strategies and rarely ever do we look to the spirit in order for the spirit to come and do something extraordinary that we could not plan or that we could not do ourselves um, and so I think this is again this is why it's very very important for us um, to do what Peter and John here are doing with the rest of the people and that is coming to him in order to pray and again that leads into number two who is praying here? Um, verse 23 says, When they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Luke does not say here that they went to the other apostles. A lot of times I think that's kind of what people think in some ways, especially in, in kind of the church world, is that you've got the kind of the pastoral staff who are the holy ones, who God answers their prayers but doesn't answer other people's prayers. Like if we really want to get something done or something from God, let's go to the holy of holies of those who are in certain types of leadership positions um, because they've kind of figured this thing out called spirituality and let's let them do the praying for us rather than everybody else. And what Luke is making a distinctive here is that that is not the way that God works ultimately. 
God works through the people of God. It literally says he went to his friends, which means his own, his people. Um, there's only other, two other places in Scripture that this is used, and one is Acts 2 or Acts 24:23, where it says that Felix commanded that none of Paul's friends, or literally his own, would uh, or should be, be prevented from attending to his needs. So he's saying anyone who's friends of Paul, who knows Paul, anyone who's Christians, like let them come in and tend to my needs. And so this is, this is empowering everybody who lives under the banner of the gospel, who lives under the banner of Christ follower, has the ability to be able to come to God in order to pray that he would outpour his spirit on each one of us. And so it's relevant to us because um, there's not just someone with special rights and privileges, but every single one of us has this invitation to be able to come to God and pray for this to happen. It's not just waiting for the staff to get behind closed doors or the leadership team to get behind closed doors and pray and do something kind of spiritual and mature in order for God to then move through our church. No, it's our church gathering together in order to pray that the Spirit of God would be poured out among us. And so that's why I think it is relevant for us today. The number, th- uh, number three, when it was prayed. The prayer is relevant because of the occasion when it was prayed. Um, it's following the threats of the religious leaders. Peter and John had just been released from custody. Verse 23 says, they told um, or verse 23 says that they told the other believers specifically what the chief priests and elders had said. Verse 29 clues us in on what this was. The believers pray, now Lord, look upon their threats. So when they're coming back to their friends, they're then coming to their friends to kind of give them a report of what just happened to them when they were in the court, when they were arrested, when they were held in custody. They're coming to their friends and they're saying, here's what they were threatening us. And what they were threatening us is back in verses 18 and 21, which is demanding that Peter and John not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And verse 21 then says they go on and threaten them even further. So the occasion for this prayer, the circumstance is a very dangerous threat against the preaching of God's word in the name of Jesus. There were extraordinary obstacles in the way of the spread of Jesus' name. And this is why the church is so urgent in its prayer. They do not, literally, they do not assume that they can keep on and advance in effective ministry without the outpouring of the Spirit on them. They're coming to God asking God to look upon the threats of these people because what the threats of these people are is they're trying to snuff out the gospel. They're trying to take this Jesus movement that is now spreading amongst the people and they want it to stop. And the way in which they want it to stop is by threatening the ones who are then spreading the message. And so the ones who are spreading the message, these apostles, these disciples, these these first church believers, these first church community... They're literally going to God and saying, God, we need you. We desperately need you to pour out your spirit upon us because if you don't pour out your spirit upon us, we don't know if we can keep doing this. So they need God to be able to come in and empower them to press on amidst the application or amidst the the opposition and amidst the persecution that is happening to them. We face tremendous obstacles too. Persecution of Christians is a way of life in many countries of the world. 
yeah, we don't necessarily feel it as much here in our westernized culture because we're not threatened right now that anybody's going to come into this theater and like just try to, you know, handcuff me and drag me off stage. We're not threatened by that. We're not threatened by posting social media, anything about the church or anything about Jesus because we're in a culture that is, even though it's narrowing and even though the persecution is slowly increasing and I believe will only increase over time, like America is going to only increasingly become less and less Christian. And if you really want to, like we are not a Christian nation, no matter what people think or say politically, we're not a Christian nation. And so it's only like the religious freedom of us to be able to proclaim the name of Jesus is only going to continue to squeeze and get tighter and tighter and press in on us. Even beyond that, just looking at other obstacles, the anonymity of neighborhoods due to mobility. I mean, like the, the reality of like our, the, the way we live in our neighborhoods is not the way people used to live in their neighborhoods. The way people used to live in neighborhoods is front porch society. It's like you you knew your neighbors, you knew who was across the street. Like you, those were the people in which you hung out with and did life with. Now we do it based on across the city or across the community or or basically just in the the spheres of influence or, or networks that we kind of walk around in. And so there's an anonymity of neighborhoods due to mobility. The entertainment industry that keeps people saturated with the world and numb to spiritual things. Like, guys, this is a persecution on the church, the fact that we are trying to keep up with the entertainment industry. That, unfortunately, a lot of times churches are trying to match the entertainment industry by creating entertainment, thinking that that's ultimately going to bring people into the body. And I'm not saying that we try to, like, be anti-entertainment. Like, we want good music, and we want good uh, ministries, and we want things that serve people in certain ways. But at the end of the day, just trying to... to or just seeing the entertainment industry never is an answer for the longing of people's hearts and souls and what they're actually after. It never gets there. We know this. All it does is numb the soul. It's just temporary. It's, it's literally just a drug. It's a drug. Secular relativists feel more and more threatened by our message that there's one way to God and one set of commandments valid for all. Like, do you remember just a couple of years ago, the Houston mayor demanding a copy of all sermons be um, submitted to her office? Do y'all remember that happening? I guess it was about four years ago now. It was back in 2014. Yeah, the, the Houston mayor literally subpoenaed every single sermon in the city of Houston because she had an agenda to try to snuff out anybody who was anti her agenda in office. And so if it was contrary to what she was wanting the city to go in as far as a direction politically, then she was going to try to bring opposition on that church. And the funny thing is, like, you don't even have to subpoena them. Just go to most people's websites. You can listen to the sermons. But this was the reality. It was, it was an attack on religious freedom in order to try to have a political agenda get pushed through. And this is the reality of, of what our country is ultimately kind of leading down towards the obstacle the obstacles that we face making Christ known are great and therefore we need the Holy Spirit I mean just just think about this situation for for a second you've got apostles that are present here you've got Peter and John 
you've got first church leaders that are present here. One, including Barnabas that we're going to see in the next chapters, who's also a part of this kind of quote-unquote staff of this church. Barnabas ultimately ends up going out with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. I mean, you've got some of the elite of kind of our, our Christianity, our leaders, our founding fathers of this faith. And these guys, if, if, if they need to pray in order for God to show up and to do something among them that is going to then empower them to be able to continue spreading this message, how much more do we? 2,000 years removed from witnessing the resurrection with an increasing dependence upon our personally developed skills rather than spirit-filled gifts? I mean, we think about that all the times. Like we even kind of, and to a thought, we even think through, hey, how is this person wired? All right, let's plug them into this ministry. How is this person skill set? Like what do they do in their career and how can we plug that into ministry rather than kind of stepping back and actually doing a spiritual assessment of, of the way in which God has ultimately wanted to gift them in order for them to serve in ministry. And so a lot of times we just look at kind of the, the, the competency from an external factor. And these guys who are competent in incredible ways within the church are looking at the Spirit saying, no, we desperately need the Spirit in this moment right now because we do not feel as though we can continue on because of these threats if we do not have the Spirit come and empower us. We're desperate for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on us, to increase our boldness, our affections, and our devotion to ultimately the Word of God, to be able to continue sharing and proclaiming the Word of God, which was what they were so concerned about. Number four, this prayer is relevant because of whom it was prayed to. They're literally declaring who God is in this prayer. It's actually remarkable that these Christians take five verses to tell God who He is and then two verses to ask what they want from him. Now, God doesn't need to be told who he is. God knows who he is, right? But the reason why they tell God who he is is because they need to know who God is. They need to be reminded of who God is. They need to say, as verse 24 says, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, they need to remind it. Their appeal to him as the creator of all things, they know that if God created everything in the earth and everything in the sea and everything in the heaven, then these elders, these priests, these, these rulers who are offering threats against them, they know that they are God's property and he can do with them as he pleases. They're his creation. And so if they need something dealt with, with God's creation, they're going to go to God creator and say, God, will you deal with this situation? Because we don't know how to handle them. We don't know what to do here. Second, they say that God is the one who is ruler of all. And this one's a difficult one. Ruler of all, even the deeds of evil men. He brings to nothing the rage of the Gentiles, and he empties the plans of his adversaries. They say this by quoting Psalm 2 in verses 25 and 26, and then by showing that the psalm was fulfilled in the way God was in control when evil men killed Jesus. Listen to it. 
Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That's the conspiracy of the nations mentioned in Psalm 2. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's how God turned their rage into a vain thing and then accomplished His saving purpose. God literally took the sins of humans towards another human and in His sovereignty and in His control flipped it up on itself to actually accomplish the very thing that they didn't want to happen. The reason for them murdering Jesus was because they wanted Jesus to stop. And in them murdering Jesus, what they were actually doing was exercising the entire plan of God for Jesus to be slaughtered. And in him being slaughtered and resurrected, now it's flipped on themselves. And the entire Christianity has been now empowered by the death of Christ. So the very thing that they set out to accomplish, ultimately accomplished what God wanted to happen. This is him being sovereign over all things. In other words, just like the psalm says, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? Their rage comes to nothing and their imagination is empty because God rules even over the sinful deeds of men and causes them to backfire on them. Jesus is risen and the stone which the builders ultimately rejected, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the stone that they rejected has now become the head of the corner. I mean, literally, these rulers, these elders, like these aren't just some random people in Jerusalem looking to kill some guy. Like these were the leaders of Judaism. These were the leaders of God's chosen people. And these were the quote-unquote builders of God's house. They were the ones who were put in place in order to bring about the entire system and structure in which God was going to redeem the world. They're they're the builders. They're meant to look at all the people in place here and figure out in which ones they're going to place in order for this family to be built. And when it came to Jesus, they looked at Jesus as a brick and said, absolutely not. He is not going to be a part of this house in which we are building. And they took that brick and they threw him out into the dump. And then God came down. And when he came down, he looked at that brick that was thrown out and that was buried. And he picked it up after three days. And not only did he use it as a part of the house, but he then placed it in the corner of the house, which was then going to define every single brick that was put into the house. It was going to be the defining um, relationship, the defining peace in the puzzle in which everything else looks to in order to have direction, in order to have purpose, in order to have placement of where it was ultimately going to be. This is Jesus, and this is God's sovereignty at work at the cross of Christ. And it's an incredibly difficult thing to look at when it comes to responsibility. Like if, if, if you were to put a prosecutor on this case or just a, a detective on this case and tried to look at who's responsible for the death of Jesus, it's, it's nearly impossible to place the blame on somebody. Because what you're going to look at is you're going to look at these religious leaders. You're going to look at, okay, let's just look at it. 
Herod and Pontius Pilate. Herod was one who mocked Jesus, who threatened Jesus, who made fun of Jesus, who persecuted Jesus, and then sent him back. You have Pontius Pilate who says, I don't really want anything to do with this, and so I'm just going to condone whatever it is that you want, Jews, and so you know best for your people, so you figure it out, and so I'm just going to turn him over to you. So you have Pilate who is condoning this as well. You have the Gentiles who actually are the ones who then execute Jesus because Jews were not allowed to actually perform executions in this period, so they have to turn it over to the Romans in order for the Gentiles to then come and actually crucify him. And then you have the people of Israel who are standing by chanting, yelling, crucify him, crucify him. We're offering him up to you. And so you have every single one of them who have a responsibility at the murder of Jesus. But then you have Jesus himself who says, no one takes my life. I lay it down. So you have Jesus going to the cross saying, no one, no one killed me. I laid my life down on the cross. And then you have God, the Father, who is saying that all of this, do whatever is at His hand and His plan that He predestined to take place. That the Father willed in order for Jesus to be crushed. That the Father offered up His Son as a sacrifice. All of this is taking place in order for the gospel to be birthed into our world. And so this is absolutely important for us because, again, this is a prayer. All this is prelude to asking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Here's what makes this relevant to our praying today is many would tell us that doctrine and theology are not important if you can have the power of the Holy Spirit, but these early Christians knew better. For them, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of inspired scripture, verse 25, the doctrine of God's sovereignty even over the voluntary acts of sinful people, a knowledge of Old Testament prophecy as they look to Psalm, these things were essential to them and they were praying in truth in order for the Spirit to ultimately be or come down upon them. We would do well to fill our minds with the truth that He has revealed about God in Scripture. Then we will pray more like the early Christians and specifically pray more for how God or for how we know God moves. That's one of the biggest things that, that, that I always talk about when people say, like, how do I pray or how should I go about praying? I say, go read Scripture about how the early church prayed. Look at the prayers in Scripture of how people saw God for who He is and seeing God for who He is, having a knowledge of God, having a knowledge of how God works and operates, then leads you into praying for how God is going to work and move and operate in our culture and society today. God is unchanging. Yes, our society and our culture is changing and ever-changing every single day. But that does not mean that the way in which God is ultimately working to redeem, reconcile, mature, conform His people to the image of Christ is not changing. The way in which God redeems today is the exact same way in which He redeemed 2,000 years ago. It's just a different set of circumstances. It's a different set of entertainment. 
Lust looks a little differently today versus lust 2,000 years ago, but it's still lust, and God's answer to it is still the exact same. His answer to greed, his answer to envy, those things are still running rampant as they were 2,000 years ago, as they were 1,500 years ago, as they are today. They just look circumstantially a little different. So it's getting to the root of the issue in which we're praying for the Spirit to come and answer that then changes our heart and our affections and our desires that then ultimately lead out in the way that we now actually steward those things in which are around us. So doctrine and theology are absolutely important because it helps guide us in how we are to pray to God for the Spirit to be poured out to us. And number five, the last one, what was asked? This prayer is relevant because of what was asked. Verse 29, they arrive at their request. Lord, look upon their threats. That's their first request. It means take note, Lord, what is at stake in their threats. They have commanded, they have commanded us to not speak of your son's name anymore. That's what's at stake here. They're praying, God, rouse yourself because nothing is of greater interest to you than the honor of your son. Nothing is of greater interest to God than the magnitude and the honor and the reputation of Jesus Christ on this earth. The renown of his name. So they're praying, Lord, rise up, take note, look at their threats. This is what their threats is, is they're trying to snuff out Jesus, and we want Jesus to be made known, and so give us the Spirit of God to make him known, to make him spread rapidly. Verse 29b says, Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see that? Like it's, they want to speak the word with all boldness. They want God to stretch out his hand in order to heal and for signs and wonders to happen. They want all those things to happen in order for the name of Jesus to be extolled in order for the name of Jesus to be made known in order for people to see that this is all coming from Jesus this is why this is kind of capping off this story of the crippled man is because that was a sign a wonder a miracle that happened to this guy and what is happening now is they're saying we want that to continue on but what Peter when he was preaching to them in response to the crippled man he said this didn't come from me this didn't come from the apostles this didn't come from the church this this man is healed by faith in Christ and in who he is not in what we can accomplish ourselves and so what he's saying here is this this happened because Jesus is awesome not because this man was awesome this happened because Jesus was awesome, not because Peter and John were awesome. It's not because they were just walking into the temple gates one day and thought, you know what, let's be real spiritual today and let's do a miracle to this guy right here and then let's go on and let other people look at us and let us start speaking in conferences now because, because we just healed a guy. No, they're, they're walking in saying Jesus is awesome. Jesus has turned our attention to this man that we pass every single day. Jesus wants to heal this guy. So money and silver we don't have, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. This man begins walking. This man and begins clinging to Peter and John. And again, Peter and John are saying, don't cling to us, cling to Jesus. He's the reason for this. And so it's absolutely imperative for us today 
because of what they are asking is that Jesus be extolled, not us. Not us. Like, we, we don't want the district to spread in the district's name. We could care less at the end of the day if people know about the district church as long as they know about Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see happen. We don't care if, if we plant another district church in another part of the city and call it the district church. We just want to make sure that people in that community know Jesus and that He is the source for our salvation, that He is the source of all of our creation, that He is literally the reason why we continue to be who we are, that He's the reason why these seats continue. Like He's upholding all things. Grass remains grass because of Jesus. It doesn't just fall and become water. Like, everything is upheld through Jesus. And I think we take that so much for granted every single day, right? That everything is through Him and for Him and by Him. And it is in Jesus and Him alone that we find our creation, that we find our skills and abilities, that we find our personalities, that we find our essence, that we find our salvation, that we find our faith in order to repent and confess to Christ that He is Lord, in order for us to then conform more and more to become like Jesus. Every single bit of that is because of Jesus Himself, not some magical formula that we try to put together in church in order to, if you read this amount of times, and if you pray this, and if you do this over here, then all of a sudden now you're going to be more like Jesus. No, it's in Jesus determining that that is going to happen, that it then happens for us, and we then respond to it by abiding in Him, by, by resting in Him, by looking to Him in the Scriptures, by communicating with Him through prayer, all of that is a response to what Jesus is already accomplishing in us. And so therefore, we are to become what we already are in Jesus. But we need Jesus first and foremost in order for that to ultimately happen. So let's get after him. Let's close out. The way I want us to close out is let's get in groups. If, if Peter and John, when they were released, if the first thing they did was not call for a staff meeting, but rather just went to the church, their friends, and said, let's get together. We need to pray. We need to pray for the Spirit of God to fall like He did at Pentecost. We need, him, we need Him to come again because we're seeing this opposition. We're seeing these threats. We're, we're seeing the circumstances around us kind of squeeze us and press us. And so what we need is we need the Spirit of God to fall on us more. And so they gather them together to pray this. And so I think that's the way we should close out today is I think we should just gather in groups and let's pray. So let's get, let's do two well, maybe three groups. Let's do three groups. Um, however you want to divide it up is fine. But let's do three groups, and let's pray these things. I mean, literally, they take basically five verses to hallow God's name before they then pray, thy will be done. And so let's get together. Let's pray first. Let's hallow his name. God, you're creator. You're good. You're awesome. Let's tell him that. He doesn't need to know it, but we need to know it. So let's tell him that, and then let's pray 
specifically for the Spirit of God to come and empower and embolden and to fall on it. Like, guys, let's believe this. Let's believe that Jesus wants to send his Spirit to us, that he's already promised that he's going to send to us. Let's pray that he would send him to us in order to fall on us in an extraordinary way, just like he's done in this church. That he would do that among us today, tomorrow, next Sunday in our church that he would just send the Spirit in the Spirit's timing to fall upon us and to empower us. So let's go ahead and let's, let's stand up and let's break up into groups of four, four or five, however it works out. And let's just spend some time in prayer before we finish out with some song. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at